You're listening to For the Record, a Registrar podcast sponsored by ACRO. I'm your host, Doug McKenna, and this is the future of higher education. Hello, and welcome to For the Record, a Registrar podcast sponsored by ACRO. I'm your host, Doug McKenna, and today I'll be talking about the future of higher education. In fact, what you're about to hear is a presentation I was asked to give as part of Course Dogs Community 2020, a virtual summit for higher ed event. A link to the event website is in the show notes, along with the slide deck from my presentation. So sit back and take a listen to what I think 20 to 30 years from now will be like. All right, we're nothing if not punctual. Hello, everyone. I'm Doug McKenna. I'm the university registrar at George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia. I've worked in higher ed for the past 18 years at five different institutions, and I've been involved at various levels with ACRO, the American Association of Collegiate Registrars and Admissions Officers, and I currently host the ACRO-sponsored registrar-focused podcast, For the Record. I appreciate the opportunity to share some thoughts with you today. A disclaimer, none of the views presented here are representative of George Mason University, uh, nor of ACRO. So these are my very own thoughts. Uh, a few things right off the bat. I've never liked the moniker higher education. Uh, higher than what? It's already called high school. So you go to high school and now you're off to higher school. So one of the shifts that we'll see in the next 20 to 30 years is an overall commitment to engaging students as lifelong learners. So for the rest of this presentation, I will be referring to our industry as lifelong education. Uh, lifelong education provides a better framing for the kind of engagement and interactions we'll be having with our learners into the future. And it better communicates to the world the kind of service we as institutions provide. Now, the future. There used to be a very funny bit on the Conan O'Brien show where they'd say, in the year 2000, when they were making ridiculous predictions. It is a fascinating time to be contemplating the future of anything, much less an industry as entrenched and ingrained in the American psyche as lifelong education. And doubly so when many of us aren't even certain about how our institutions will deliver classes this fall. There's a series called The Universe, I think it was on the History Channel maybe or Discovery Channel. Anyway, one episode there was a geologist on explaining that while we aren't that great at predicting the weather any further than the next couple of days, we can predict with relative certainty where a continent will be in a million years. And that's a wild assertion, and it'll be hard to prove that geologist wrong, but that nugget of truth is clear. Sometimes it's easier to see what's coming down the road than it is to see what's right in front of us. So for the continents, there are inexorable forces that are at work and will continue to be at work, and those give us some certainty about where things are going. Lifelong education is like that too, actually. The next three to five years are gonna be incredibly challenging. 
The financial effects from COVID-19 are going to be long-lasting and will affect our institution's ability to fund educations the way they historically have. It will affect families' abilities to pay and perhaps will also reduce their tolerance to pay. And that isn't even considering our state, local, or federal government funding or read lack thereof. More institutions will close as a result of these financial difficulties, as some institutions have already announced. And so COVID-19 has most certainly been disruptive. But the question for us to ponder as we think 20 to 30 years down the road is, has it been disruptive enough? And I love this Niels Bohr quote, we all know your idea is crazy. The question is whether it is crazy enough. And so to the point of has COVID been disruptive enough, I don't think it has, and I'll tell you why. There's still a sense from a lot of people that I've talked to that when a vaccine is available, things will go back to normal. And so that clinging to the normal of the past is still a very strong tendency. Lifelong education is an exceptionally conservative enterprise, not in the political sense, but in the maintain the status quo sense of things, as Craig talked about in his presentation about leadership and in reference to Lewin's change model. And so while COVID-19 has caused a shakeup of the way that we do our business, will it be enough to catapult us into the kind of changes that I'll talk about for the next 20 or 30 minutes or so? And really, only time will tell. And that is another super fun thing about talking about the future. It's all speculation. Maybe someone listening right now will write to me in 30 years and say, you were wrong, 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 wrong. But, but probably not. This is fundamentally a speculative exercise. But the kernels of the future state that I'll describe will be easily recognizable to you. So let's talk about it. What is the future state? Are you ready? Deep breath. We're going to talk about four things. The first is societal changes as a prerequisite for lifelong education's future flourishing. Second will be the modularization, for lack of a better term, of degree programs. Third will be the interoperability of credentials and credentialing writ large. And the fourth and sort of interwoven within each of these is technology. Now, I will not be talking about blockchain specifically, but I am told that blockchain will save us all. So there's my plug for it. But that, that will be the last time I mention blockchain for today. Maybe. No promises. Okay. Even though I've highlighted four areas that I'm going to focus on, uh, it's really easier to say what will remain the same with lifelong education over the next 30 years. So things that aren't changing. There will continue to be students, though they'll almost universally be referred to as learners. There will continue to be faculty. Uh, and there will obviously continue to be administrators who are responsible for keeping track of all sorts of things. Everything else, 
including the details of these three aforementioned, is really up for discussion. Okay, so what do I mean when I say that there are societal prerequisites for the future of lifelong education? I'm going to talk about the sources of funding. I'm going to talk about access and equity and representation. I already mentioned that COVID is putting a serious strain on people's and institutions' finances. Some 35 million Americans or something have filed for unemployment over the last two months. That's bad. Even before that, Americans had tallied up a record amount of student loan debt. And as of 2018, the numbers were 44.2 million borrowers owed a total of something like $1.5 trillion, with a T, in student debt. So the funding model of lifelong education has never been more imperiled, and it simply must change. So as a society, we have to decide whether lifelong education is a worthy endeavor to be supported, and I believe it is. Study after study illustrates the value of earning a post-secondary degree, and that post-secondary is also a widely misunderstood descriptor. So if we're going to sell this industry as a meaningful thing, we should probably use more easily understood language. The future of life, I digress, sorry. The future of lifelong education is only sustainable when achieving an education doesn't indenture someone to servitude. So education will be fully funded for all in the future. How, how Doug, how will it be funded for all? Well, Elizabeth Warren has a plan for that. I'm only partially joking. She does, in fact, have a plan. But I will just say that every billionaire is a failure of policy. No one needs that much money ever. No one can spend that much money in two lifetimes. And as a society, we need to ensure that those who can fund via taxes in particular but also in many cases in the future, more public-private partnerships. Industry is very interested in the product of lifelong education. That product is educated learners who are ready and able to contribute in the marketplace. So we will see a rise of partnerships where corporations are increasingly footing the bill for initiatives at Institution of Lifelong Learning. These will be viewed by those corporations as necessary investment for the labor force that is needed to support future industry, and not just skilled trades, but well-rounded, liberal arts-educated, lifelong learners who have critical thinking skills that can be brought to bear to tackle the problems of the day. Pause and think for a moment how many paradigms would shift if lifelong education was fully funded for all. Our learners wouldn't have to juggle two and three jobs while taking classes just to cover tuition. Our learners wouldn't have to stop out because they ran out of money. Our learners could dedicate themselves in ways many of them haven't been able to in the enterprise of learning. In short, it would take an enormous amount of stress off of our learners. And the financial implications don't stop there. 
faculty wouldn't be under such intense pressure to receive grants, though there still be a lot of competition for the best and brightest faculty to win the most prestigious grants and awards. So next up is access and representation. Because being able to afford entry into lifelong education will no longer be an obstacle, we have to work diligently to ensure that we don't replace that obstacle with others. Women are currently the majority of graduates, and as of last year, women were projected to become the majority of college-educated U.S. workers. That's per a report from NPR. But that hasn't translated into a majority of leadership positions, including in lifelong education institutions. But that will change in the next 20 to 30 years, where we will see a significant increase in the participation of women and people of color at all levels of leadership. It isn't going to happen on accident, and it won't happen all by itself. People who look like me and who have lived a privileged life, not financially privileged maybe, but privileged in the sense that the color of my skin hasn't made my life more difficult, people who look like me can't be passive in this. It isn't enough to not be racist. We have to be anti-racist. Lifelong education is incompatible with a society where black bodies are treated as disposable by law enforcement. Every one of us is responsible for changing that. There will be another civil rights movement, and it is overdue. So that'll be a big change. Fully funded education leading to increased access, leading to increased representation on campuses. And all of those are very good things. Okay. Can we talk about the academic calendar for a minute? I am working on a podcast episode about the academic calendar, which is nerdy. I know. I'm a registrar. I, I own that about myself. This is a thing that is hundreds of years old, and we just accept it like it continues to make sense. Why does school start in the fall? Anyone? Bueller? I know you can't talk. This is a hypothetical response. It's because of the harvest. When was the last time you had to be home for the harvest? Luke Skywalker really wanted to go to the academy, but Uncle Owen needed him home for the harvest. And that led to the destruction of the empire, which turns out was a good thing. I don't mean to argue that, that never mind. Anyway, it's more than that too. The Carnegie unit is also partially responsible, further proving that no good deed goes unpunished. Uh, Carnegie, and uh, I've yet to hear the appropriate explanation of why some people call him Carnegie and some people call him Carnegie. So I'll just alternate back and forth. Uh, I'm always worried about putting the emphasis on the wrong syllable for Carnegie's name. Anyway, he wanted to create a retirement fund for college professors, which eventually became TIAA-CREF. But he needed a way to validate that someone was a professor at an actual college. So there was a time-bound unit of measurement created in order to compare the teaching at different institutions to avoid apples-to-oranges comparisons. And it stuck. 
And now we have practically standard 15-week semesters that start in the fall with credits that are basically assigned as time and seat units. And that doesn't even factor in all the money brought in by college football. So the academic calendar makes very little sense. And is that the future of lifelong education? As I'm sure you've already guessed, the answer is probably not. Many of us have seen the proliferation of various parts of term, mini terms, modular calendars, and the like. They are generally a headache because they don't fit nicely into the current federal financial aid regulations. And because as registrars, we like our rules, and these terms challenge our notion of steady state. They're also administratively cumbersome to set up and maintain in our uh, enterprise resource planning systems, which again were built with this idea of a semester being 15 weeks and there are two of them, etc. So the future will bring an increasingly individually tailored learning experience for learners, both in terms of the content of the curriculum, but also in terms of the pattern of participation. And this ties into the interoperability of credentials and obviously with technology and is enabled by the funding model of the future as well. So learners will have significantly more options about how they participate and engage in their learning down to selecting modules of individual courses taken over an individually determined period of time, all the way to having modules as parts of the major or parts of a degree program. A student may be able to take two or three classes at a time focusing on one problem statement or on one set of learning objectives. And this will allow for a deeper engagement with the subject matter, potentially improving the breadth and depth of the learner's knowledge. Redesigning curriculum to enable this kind of learning will be a challenge, and adjusting policies to support these methodologies will also be a challenge. If a student is operating on an individually determined timeline for a specific course, how do we report them as enrolled? When do we follow up with the instructor on a final grade? How do we represent this kind of engagement on the transcript? Don't worry too much about the transcript, though. It's not going to go away, go away, but it's going to be significantly enhanced. And that is a good segue to talking about the interoperable learner record. But that means we need to do a quick recap of the transcript itself. And there's an episode of For the Record, shameless plug, that talks about the history of the student record with Dr. Ethan Hutt from the University of Maryland. It's a great episode. Check it out. Registrars were super involved in the way transcripts were standardized way back at the turn of the century. Not, not this most recent turn of the century, but the one before that. Where higher education was getting revved up in these United States and institutions were struggling with how to quantify the accomplishments of a student at one institution when that student came to a different institution. And this was around the same time as the Carnegie unit, Carnegie unit, was sort of locked in as well. And have you taken a look at your transcript recently? And I mean really looked at it. It's all inside baseball. We limit the characters for the title of classes. 
We include subject codes and course numbers like that's meaningful anywhere outside of our own institution's admissions offices. And we notably mask the high touch and experiential learning experiences with one-line entries such as internship. Transcripts are basically used for one thing by anyone outside of education, confirmation that a degree was earned. Maybe employers look at a GPA or at the major of study, but according to some of the career services offices I've worked with, the transcript isn't the go-to document that registrars have built it up to be. Now, there has already started to be a shift with the transcript in that institutions are sending and receiving transcripts electronically, and that's great. But in most cases, these are simply facsimiles of the paper document and all of its shortcomings. In the future, we will see a significant enhancement to what we think of as a transcript. The Lumina Foundation partnering with ACRO has already started to conceive of the transcript of the future and has postulated the idea of a comprehensive learner record, or CLR. That's a little too big brother for me, and I prefer the term coined by the Strata Institute for the Future of Work, the Interoperable Learner Record, or ILR. Another thing that won't change about lifelong education is our love of and adherence to acronyms. Can't get rid of them. So the ILR, what are the qualities or attributes of an interoperable learner record? So it'll be primarily an electronic artifact to enable end users to swizzle the data contained therein in ways that are useful for them. And these users can be other institutions of lifelong education or employers, current employers, prospective employers, or employers who are shopping for uh, employees. It'll include courses and grades, yes, but it will also include more descriptive text to identify the subject and titles of those courses. It will also include the learning outcomes achieved based on the learning objectives as identified by the instructor for the course. Where is this information coming from? Well, many of our institutions are already using some kind of a curriculum management system. And current technology already enables the combining of these data sets to produce a more robust, understandable, and useful artifact for our learners. Hand-in-hand with the increase in modular learning will be the rise of micro-credentials, badges, certificates, licenses, and others. Again, we're already seeing the foundations of this at a handful of institutions across the United States today. Micro-credentials serve as both an end of their own, but can also be building blocks toward additional other credentials, making it possible for a learner to collect micro-credentials and combine them into a baccalaureate degree or even a master's degree, or if not one of those, into another different kind of micro-credential or certification or license. What the interoperable learner record, the ILR, will enable institutions to do is to recognize and articulate equivalencies to prior learning at other institutions more readily, which will ease the transfer and collection of credits 
and learning experience for our learners. Internships, externships, capstone experiences are consistently some of the most meaningful and affective experience experiences learners engage in during their time at our institutions. But those experiences are practically invisible on today's transcript. The ILR would enable learners to provide narrative descriptions of the work they did or the learning they engaged in and what effect it had on them or on others. Communicating these successes, articulating these successes in an official way is critical to the relevancy of lifelong education moving forward. So let's shift now to technology because without it, none of the previous points will get us very far. We live in a highly technologically reliant society and that is not going to shift in another direction anytime soon. And this is the futurist Ray Kurzweil and he sums it up as such. Our intuition about the future is linear, but in fact, information technology is exponential. To emphasize that, he says, if I take 30 steps linearly, I get to 30. If I take 30 steps exponentially, I get to a billion. If I take 30 steps linearly, I get to 30. If I take 30 steps exponentially, I get to a billion. That difference is enormous. And that is an understatement. You're welcome. So with COVID, we've been forced to shift our operations and our methods of instruction into an electronic realm simply to stay afloat. And this has highlighted and revealed some real discrepancies in capability and readiness, both on the part of the faculty and on the part of students, but also on the part of our technology infrastructure nationwide. 30 years from now, we will look back on these days of video conferences as quaint. The future is full of immersive virtual learning experiences. Students engaging in hands-on learning from the safety of their homes or under the watchful eye of a faculty member in a specialty space. As disruptive technologies like virtual reality become pervasive technologies, they will be adopted at large scale by institutions of lifelong education. RPI is doing this right now with an immersive language lab that teaches students Mandarin Chinese using artificial intelligence chatbots. Students who participate in this learning um, delivery mode are learning Mandarin about twice as fast as their counterparts in a normal traditional classroom. So there will be centers of teaching and learning that develop and integrate pedagogies that make extensive use of these technologies. Faculty is gonna, faculty will, faculty are uh, studying and applying these technologies in order to maximize their effectiveness. Okay, 
The integration of our many and varied systems will also be more completely realized, making it simpler to connect learning outcomes with courses taken, for example, as we talked about in support of the ILR, but also in identifying students at risk or better matching faculty research interests with potential funding sources and matching credential, credentialed learners with employers. This isn't necessarily the singularity that Kurzweil writes about, but we're moving in that direction. Okay, let's see. So summing up, higher education is going to change dramatically in the next 30 years, and it's going to start with that revision of calling it higher education to lifelong education. I think about these things a lot, and it is fun to play out different scenarios and adjust the various inputs, outputs as you move through them. No one knows exactly what the future holds, um, but if present trends hold, these are reasonable assumptions to make about where lifelong education will be in 30 years. Some of us will be there administering these changes, and each of the changes will require significant levels of support of flexibility, and the adoption of new policies and procedures, all the while continuing our own engagement with our own lifelong learning. So when we remove funding as an obstacle, we will increase access, equity, and we will see an expansion in representation. We will see our learners engage in more varied delivery models and modules, uh, so different calendars and different delivery modes. Uh, our learners' achievements and experiences will be compiled into one interoperable learner record. And obviously, we've mentioned this a couple of times now, technology plays a critical supporting role in all of this. So I've raced through in order to leave plenty of time for questions and discussions um, and so if you have questions, we are using the Q&A function, not the chat or the raise your hand function. So with that, I want to say thank you to Course Dog for uh, organizing today and for inviting me to share some thoughts and then uh, to you for listening. And let's talk. Do I have exa examples of a new transcript to support the uh, move toward an interoperable learner record? There were maybe 12 or 15 schools that worked with, as I mentioned, the Lumina Foundation and ACRO. I don't have any of them on hand, but there have been, uh, I know Johns Hopkins has a transcript that ties learning outcomes with courses taken I know that Elon has done the, um, and San Diego State University have both done um, sort of expansive co-curricular transcripts, and that will be part of uh, representing co-curricular uh, involvement and participation um, in the interoperable learner record, the ILR. Who else? Those are three that jump to mind. Uh, it's the same idea. It's a part of the whole. And if you think about all of the ways that we currently fragment our learners' engagement, 
into these various pieces. So we've got an academic transcript, you have a co-curricular transcript, you have an experiential transcript, you have a learning outcome transcript, you've got a micro-credential credential, um, portfolio. Like all of those are different views of the same individual. And the, I think the goal of the ILR is to pull all of those things together so that when I, as Doug McKenna, go to apply for my next job, I can represent myself more comprehensively, more holistically. I am not the sum total of the credits that I've taken and the grades that I've received at my many and various storied institutions, but I am in fact a person who has participated in these extracurricular things, who have done service, who has done, you know, all of these other aspects to how we want our learners to be able to represent themselves in order to position themselves for success in the world writ large. The better we can do that, I think two things will happen. One is our learners will be more successful in landing good jobs. But two, I think that they, our learners, will increase their affection, for lack of a better term, with our institutions, and there will be an increase of engagement. Right now, we talk about our alumni, and every university I've ever worked at has been like, oh, we have 144,000 alumni, and we did a a campaign, and we got like a 4% response rate or something like that. Well, as we move forward with this, and as we shift the paradigm from getting your degree and being done and you go out into the world to engaging with your institution in a lifelong learning process, I think that we will also see an increase in engagement with our alumni as they recognize themselves as needing additional lifelong learning, needing additional learning for their lifetime. That's a better way of saying it. Great question. What will the effect of accreditation and accrediting bodies be on institutions moving forward? Um, I think that one of the ways that we will drive change is to change the accrediting bodies, assessments of institutions. Right now, as, as we exist, all of our institutions are forced into some sense of standardization with our accrediting bodies. And obviously there's a, a wide berth there. We're not all, it's not a cookie cutter, but our accrediting bodies will drive and they do drive where we as institutions focus our energies, where we ensure compliance, um, both from a faculty perspective, from a students we accept perspective, all of those things. And so as accrediting bodies are able to shift a, a perspective or to modify a paradigm and then force schools, institutions to meet those new paradigms, I think that is actually a very good lever for catapulting institutions forward into the, the future desired state. Uh, I do think that that will also be a challenge. Accrediting bodies, like many other entities in lifelong education, are 
conservative in nature. They want to make sure that they retain their important role in the status quo. And for accrediting bodies to remain important uh, and remain vital, to remain necessary, there is sort of uh, you will meet these things and you'll do it in this way. It will be important for us to infiltrate the boards of accrediting bodies as well and come to some additional agreement on what's appropriate as we move forward. So I, I think they're a good lever, but they can also be a pretty big obstacle. Hi, Eileen. How will we navigate the barriers in the shift of lifelong learning? This is a good question, and it's one of those things where I'd like to say, oh, that, that'll be no problem. But as we've learned, just from shifting everything online um, for the tail end of the spring semester and for summer 2020 as a result of COVID-19, it's going to be wildly disruptive for a while. And so that gets to a whole change management paradigm. It gets back uh, to the leadership presentation that was done at 11, where people are resistant to change naturally. And so we need to articulate the value of the future state. And then we need to support people in their movement toward that future state. Obviously, with the funding model, one of the ways that you can support that is to vote and not to be wildly political, even though I think I am, which is why I made the disclaimers. I'm not speaking on behalf of George Mason University or of ACRO. There is a real sense that people can be involved in these decisions. And one of the ways that you can do that is to vote for politicians state, local, and federal, uh, who support this view of a future state in lifelong education. And then it's really just um, encouraging it, having champions for it, um, and supporting it as institutions. And I think selling the idea of it is not going to be difficult to industry. We already talk about different trainings, different certifications, ongoing re-upping of particular skills, et cetera. I think what it will be different is if higher education can rebrand as lifelong education, that's an easier sell, I think. It's better marketing because it's a better framework. Everyone, the, When you stop learning, you start dying. And so as everything changes over the next 30 years. Engaging in some formal education, even in a modular setting, even in um, a virtual reality setting with an AI bot as your teacher, being able to capture and document and articulate the value of that learning engagement is critical for lifelong education in order to remain relevant. So that's how I think we support it. There's no doubt that the flow of international students into American higher education has been thwarted uh, now twice in our lifetimes. First, after September 11th, 2001, and the adoption of the Patriot Act made everything more difficult for international students to study in the United States and now with travel bans and restrictions um, and with a pandemic, again, it's going to take a while before 
um, we see a return in the numbers and types of students coming to the United States from other places around the world, especially not in the numbers that they had been previously. And that is a serious concern from a funding model perspective in today's market. International students pay more than an in-state student for sure. They pay more than regular old American student because they're not eligible for the same types of financial aid. So losing that population of students has a, a variety of negative consequences for our institutions currently. One of them, which I think not to focus solely on the financial, is the diversity that international students bring to American campuses. And I believe our strength is in our diversity. And so it's, it's a net loss for a student's educational experience to not have various perspectives represented by individuals from different countries in their classroom. And so I see possibility moving forward where travel won't necessarily be required in order to engage in learning at another international institution. And likewise, the reverse is true for an international student to participate in learning at an American institution. I think that there's great value in that. I've lived abroad. My dad was in the army. I studied uh, abroad uh, for a semester in college. And those were both really valuable experiences for me. And if we're not able to facilitate the actual physical travel to other places, or if we're not able to bring uh, people from those other places to the United States and be on our campuses, I still think that there's enormous value in doing that kind of outreach and partnering with other institutions in different countries. I think that's a great question in the, um, whether institutions will work together to create course level exchanges. I think that that is a distinct possibility. The first two years of a baccalaureate program over the next 30 years are going to look wildly different than they do today. And some of that will be because there will be consortium agreements with schools and students will stay closer to where they live and take some of the classes that are required at their eventual desired institution, and then they'll transfer those credits. Those consortium agreements are going to be critical um, because it will ease the transfer. It will provide a mechanism for quality oversight and so expanding that from a strictly stateside agreement level, I can definitely see those types of agreements being made around the world. Technology, again, is going to enable us to be everywhere all at the same time. And so we should take advantage of all of the capabilities that we have in order to maximize our learners' experiences in engaging with whatever subject matter it is. So yes, I see a lot of possibility and a lot of plausibility in course level exchange programs internationally. 
thanks very much, everybody. Appreciate your time. And if you have follow-up questions, feel free to reach out. Thanks for listening. What did I get right? Only time will tell. What do you agree with? That's a better question. I obviously left out a lot of things that are going to change. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the future of higher ed. We have a couple of really good episodes coming up, one on organizational frameworks and another on the academic calendar. The academic calendar one is especially exciting for me, so I hope that you will enjoy it too. Stay well, drink some more water, and until next time, I'm Doug McKenna, and this is For the Record.